0: Welcome to Rockefeller Capital Management clients, our colleagues, friends of Rockefeller. This is now our eighth in the special series that we're doing during this uh, historic time uh, as a form of sharing intellectual capital uh, with our clients and all those close to uh, Rockefeller. I'm really pleased with the two individuals we have here today. They're both incredibly accomplished uh, and, um, are uh, also very good friends of mine uh, and of Rockefeller Capital Management. We have with us uh, Doug Kimmelman, who's a senior partner at Energy Capital Partners, and Neil Aronson, the founder and managing partner at Work Capital. Doug Kimmelman uh, has had a spectacular career. After attending college at Stanford and getting his business degree at Wharton, he went to work at Goldman, spent 22 years there, rose up and became a partner he was focused on the electric and gas utility sectors almost his entire time there. After all those years that Goldman, left and he started Energy Capital Partners. And um, he left actually with some of the some of his colleagues from Goldman and started Energy Capital Partners and has built it over approximately 15 years into a firm with over $20 billion of capital commitments across private equity and credit in the energy space writ large. Uh, Energy Capital Partners also uh, has a major focus, which uh, from a Rockefeller standpoint, uh, we like is obviously this is an area that we're very focused on sustainable investing, a major focus uh, in renewable energy space, including with investments in wind, solar, geothermal, uh, and more recently battery storage. Doug's also very active and has always been very active in giving back Uh, And there's a project that's particularly important uh, and close to home for Doug and his children, and that's uh, the 100-acre Carol Kimmelman Athletic and Academic Campus that uh, they're building in Los Angeles in conjunction with the USTA, ESPN, Disney, and a host of others in honor of Doug's late wife, Carol. And that's something that uh, Doug and his children uh, are very, very proud of as they honor Carol Kimmelman. We'll come uh, to Doug in a second. I wanted to also introduce uh, Neil Aronson, uh, who, as I said, is both a friend of mine and a great friend of uh, Rockefeller Capital Management. Neil's had an equally impressive career. uh, And like Doug, he's far from done. After graduating from uh, college at Lehigh, he went into corporate finance at Drexel, which takes us back a little bit. Uh, And then he went into private equity, and he's been there ever since. He was at Odyssey, uh, Acadia Partners, And then he started his own firm, actually with his uncle, focused on the hotel franchise business. Uh, They built that and did well with that. Eventually sold it and he started Rourke Capital. He based Rourke Capital in Atlanta, which is a city that he's uh, uh, close to. Uh, And um, he did, yes, in fact, name it after Howard Rourke, the famous uh, iconic character in Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, uh, which stands as one of my uh, favorite books and many others of all time Um, work is uh, is uh, quite uh, an institution today Uh, they've acquired 77 companies uh, across the restaurant franchise business that generate over 40 billion dollars in system-wide revenues across 40,000 locations talk about having your pulse on what's going on in the restaurant world today Uh, we're going to talk to somebody today who may have more insight than uh, virtually anybody else around Neil, uh, like Doug, is also very focused on giving back. Uh, he established the Rourke Portfol- uh, Portfolio Employee Assistance Fund for many of the employees that are part of the Rourke uh, franchise uh, empire. Um, he uh, he funded that himself. He and his wife with a $3 million pledge up front, and it's now grown to over $8 million. Uh, and they're very proud of um, Uh, he and his wife Wendy are very proud of what they built uh, have have set in motion there and of all the people that have donated to help employees uh, who are uh, working their way through this difficult time uh, with so many of these uh, restaurants uh, shut although as we're going to hear from Neil in a little bit uh, many of these are doing takeout and he's got a a, a plan that he's executed very well for continuing to move forward here and stay on his front foot so with that uh, I think um, I'm going to start with uh, Mr. Kimmelman, who's on uh, audio here. Doug, uh, good afternoon and welcome, and thank you for being here. Good afternoon. How are, how are you, Greg? Good to good to be doing this. It's great to have you, Doug. Um, so, Doug, let's start, and, and you know, with you here, we can do this uh, really, really, really well. Um, talk about the energy space on on a broader basis across the different pieces. You know, energy, as I recall, and it, you'll know this the The first downturn in the the down leg in the equity market was when the Russians and the Saudis uh, were at odds, and the price of oil plummeted. Um, and uh, the equity market followed that down. Um, so you know you've had the energy sector really in this from the start. Obviously, the demand contraction from coronavirus has piled on and and there's been some you know uh, uh, historic, times in the energy market during the last couple of months um, but it, it would be helpful if you walk through kind of uh, working macro down the range of sectors within energy and how they've been impacted by coronavirus by the excess supply by the demand contraction etc okay
1: well that's a, that's a lot to cover but i'm going to do my my best here to to dig into that so Let's start, the energy industry is very diverse industry, you know, and we have some some bookends of, of challenges, obviously the upstream uh, oil and gas e side of the business and the oil field services side of the businesses, which are really directly tied to the uh, to the commodity. And so, you know, that's where we have the, the, the significant uh, challenge. And, uh, you know, if we take kind of a bellwether Exxon from its high to its low down 56%, now it's down 38%, way worse than the S&P, which is, you know, down, you know, say, say 9%, uh, you know, or so from from its high. Um, and a lot of people get excited that Exxon is, is up 45% or so from its bottom, but still down 38%, uh, you know, pretty much on the year. Even worse on the on the oilfield services. If you take a company like Halliburton, maybe they're down. They were down as much as 82%. Now they're down about 54%. So that's where the bloodbath is, and it's a demand shock. Uh, Generally, the world uses about 100 million barrels a day of. oil and that dropped to as much as 70. Uh, Maybe we're getting. back uh, to the to the 85 uh, or. so level here, but a long way to go. And so the three. pieces to this are demand recovery, which I'll talk a lot. about uh, OPEC's behavior and then. the US shale producer uh, behavior. Unfortunately. on that supply side, US shale producer and OPEC. They've kind of done what they can do. And actually we're starting to see in the last week or so supply starting to kick back up, not by OPEC, but by these shale producers realize obviously the US is not a state owned oil and gas sector, so every all of these hundreds of independents have a mind of their own and they've got an enormous uh, debt maturity wave staring at them and any little bit of cash flow they can eke out, they're going to do it. So when oil gets back up to $30, you're going to see a couple of wells turn on. They have what they call ducts, uh, drilled but uncompleted wells and um not as much cost to get them going so um the cutting supply is not going to get us out of this hole it's going to be demand and probably 70 percent of the of the of the game here is what happens to to uh to the demand side and demand and i'm i'm not a COVID expert but all roads lead back into that discussion and human behavior and and when is society going to feel less risk uh to get out there and do more activity especially flying on airplanes I think we're 90% down in terms of air traffic. I saw data that TSA, you know, checks were up 35% in the last week. Encouraging, but often exceedingly low base, so that's not not very much. Um, we're excited this summer. We may have a record driving season. Looks like human behavior says, I don't want to get on a plane. I want to stay close to home and I'm going to do more, more driving. I'm down in Florida and the roads are filling up uh, very nicely uh, down here. Uh, they tell me that, you, that boat sales are off the charts because people are thinking of activities and camping equipment of staying close to home. We hear you know, some better news about a Moderna vaccine. So maybe that gets people a little positive. And then I think people are maybe starting to read the data themselves rather than listening to the television. And I, I looked at the data for Massachusetts, the most recent state to open, saying something like um, 61% of the deaths were in long-term care facilities. Ninety eight percent of the deaths, uh, they refer to it as comorbidity or there was some type, type of pre-existing uh, uh, condition um, and the average age of, uh, of, of fatality was about 82. So I think a lot of people are starting to say, well, wait a second. Uh, I'm not in, in that group. Uh, I'm relatively healthy. Uh, I'm, I'm not in my in my 80s. Maybe it's somewhat safe for me to for me to go out. Um, I, have, I heard my former boss Lloyd Blankfein tweeted today that something along the lines: the public health benefit from broad lockdowns at this point, uh, you know, is it really worth such extreme damage to, to livelihoods? So the green shoot here on demand is that people say, wait a second, maybe the risk isn't great. Maybe I'm going to get back out there. But that's really what we've got to focus on. The last thing I'll say here, just in, in green shoots of demand. Uh, is all of this nationalism talk. Uh, we can't have our supply chain held hostage to China, um, and we've got to start manufacturing more here at home, and we have both parties coalescing around that. Um, and so when you have that new demand pull for energy, when you have electric vehicle sales continuing, um, and you know here we are on, on Zoom calls and Zuckerberg says half of his employees may permanently work from home, think of the the servers and the demand from for energy to drive those servers so there are some positives out there maybe even the last is uh all the all the the uh, the ironic side of all of this in energy is fossil fuels are in every every form of uh, everything we do every day and you know think think plastics and clothing but all the PPE equipment that has to be manufactured and uh, you know the, the the masks and the gowns uh, and the gloves uh, and the syringes for all these vaccines all from fossil fuels so, uh, so we'll see. But let me stop there. It's a, it's a, a long story on demand.
0: Yeah, that's a great overview and a great overview of the different uh, spaces. And uh, you know, another, uh, another thing that uh, I saw the other day, which you and I talked about, uh, bicycle sales uh, have spiked right. to the extent there's, it's a waiting list to buy a bicycle in the country, um, which I think uh, you know indicates again, bicycles, uh, as you said, cars. I think the the space that looks like it's going to struggle the most from a demand rebound standpoint is the planes and people flying places. Um, Doug, you know, you you talked about people starting to look at the statistics and feel better about coming out, particularly people that are on the younger side where the the virus has clearly uh, not had the the same impact. Are you seeing in Florida, uh, you know, is that really starting to, to take hold in Florida? Is it, you know, on a scale of one to 10, if it I don't know where where it, it. I don't think it was ever turned off nearly as much as in New York, where we had, you know, hospitals that were filled and we had that very difficult time. But you know, if, if ten was what it was before this, how low did it go, and what what's it back to in terms of people getting back out? Well, well I'd say one of it is is that now that Florida has been open, uh, there is no
1: feel that there's been a, a resurgence of cases, and so I think people are feeling okay. That this is going pretty well. Things are open. I, I just. Anecdotally, I look at the traffic on, uh, on 95 here, and uh, it's coming on pretty strong. And so um, uh, people are getting out there, uh, restaurants are, are opening, people are out on the boat. So I, I, I think Florida obviously was no, no New York and um, you know, was pretty confident all the way through this, but um, it, is a, it is a different world uh, down here for, for sure. And confidence seems to be running very high and so much is back to normal already.
0: That's fantastic. Now, Doug, just in terms of, uh, uh, you know, laying out uh, a, a picture of this complicated industry with many pieces, which you just uh, yeah. you did in terms of the demand side uh, very, very well, um, the, the energy space, and, and this, I'm raising this because this happened again with the, the whole notion of storage. You know, uh, oil, you pull out of the ground, you know, you pur- purify it, you got to store it somewhere. Uh, and we had the whole uh, situation, you uh, uh, when the price of oil seemed to go below zero or close to zero because people didn't have enough storage for all the oil that was out there and then you have power, which obviously isn't stored. Can you talk a little bit about the, the different challenges caused by the fact that they're, they're you know these are, in essence, it fits under the energy umbrella, but they're very different uh, you know, businesses within that. Yeah, look, uh,
1: electricity, the physical nature of the electricity is you can't put it in a bucket in a bucket somewhere and store it. So one of the reasons why electricity is so complicated, but also uh, to the consumer, very expensive is we have to build massive excess capacity because you never know when it's going to be 105 degrees in New York in August. You don't know when a big facility may go offline. We're not going to black out Boston for for a month in, in putting the facility back together. So we build enormous excess capacity and you, and you have to pay for that. So until battery technology has an enormous leap forward, and, and frankly, we haven't come that far, um, still very expensive and, and still, um, you know, not yet that, that, that commercial, um, you're still gonna have that problem of, of storage, which means that natural gas power generation, nuclear generation, uh, a little bit coal-fired generation, uh, alive and well, and it's, a, it's an issue for, for renewables, not that it isn't growing, Uh, but we've got to get through that battery breakthrough. I think the storage play is just overblown in oil over what happened in a couple of days. Um, Business does not get transacted based on a forward month price. It gets transacted off of what the business is going to look like three to five years out. Energy is built on long-term capital investments. Um, All of the, the media hype around oil going negative was frankly nothing more than a little bit of hype around something that was pretty unconsequential to us in the physical world. It was basically an ETF called USO. Obviously an ETF can't take delivery. It was concentrated in the front month of, uh, of uh, forward oil purchases, uh, had no way to take delivery. Um, storage happened to be pretty full, so they had to get pay, pay people, go negative to, to take it off their hands. I don't think we're going to see that again. Uh, we do have a pretty vibrant storage on the oil and gas side um, you know, in, in this country. Um, the bigger issue is just prices in general. Um, they're not getting back to 40 or $50 anytime soon, given demand is going to take a fair amount of time. So this is going to be a troubled industry, and you can see a lot of bankruptcies because you have so much leverage in this industry and uh, cash flows are, you know, as, as we've talked about, so thin.
0: Yeah, and, and actually uh, given the demand picture you gave, uh, you know, uh, not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like it'll be a multi-year process to gear demand up across all the different areas that created uh you know purchasing uh in this in this uh in the energy space uh writ large so uh uh i I think the pressure on companies and bankruptcies over the next i don't know 6 12 18 months is going to be is, is going to be pretty significant that's what you're saying right yeah exactly exactly um, Doug, if we go to uh, uh, ESG, which is a big thing for us at Rockefeller Capital Management, uh, the Rockefeller family has been very focused on sustainable investing for a long time, and in fact, uh, they um, they coined uh, at Rockefeller Foundation the phrase uh, sustainable investing back in 2007. So we're we look at the ESG space a lot. We've got some real strong capabilities in our asset management business uh, in ESG you don't market your funds that way but the vast majority of your investments are in the renewable space and you don't own oil and gas production or coal plants so can you talk a little bit about how much esg plays into your investment process yeah
1: well, you know we certainly are led and we listen to our investors and esg is a high priority for investors and i think it's more the e than the s and g because i think most companies Virtually all companies have proper governance and they, they treat their uh, employees and, and customers appropriately. So really the focus is on the E and the environmental side of the business. And so for us, fortunately, there's an alignment between business investing and uh, doing the right thing with regards to, to ESG. We don't like the oil and gas sector as an investment team. I'm not trying to change the world, but I can't predict oil prices, never been able to. There's too many externalities I don't know what's gonna happen with demand in, in China. I don't know what's gonna happen with OPEC. Uh, I don't know what's gonna happen with the geopolitics out there. I don't know what's gonna happen with environmental policy. So I don't like the business. Coal it's being priced out of the market by natural gas because of the shale revolution. It's cheaper to produce natural gas than coal and therefore it's cheaper to make electricity from natural gas than coal. So natural gas is running coal out of business. So easy for me, bad businesses don't invest in those businesses. So, our concentration is renewables. Uh, We're the largest renewable owner in California, one of the largest in the country. Uh, Geothermal, which is great, steam out of the earth that runs 24 7. Uh, We have uh, a very large wind portfolio in California. We have one of the largest residential solar, uh, putting rooftop solar and signing 25 year contracts for that. And then we're we're one of the largest owners of natural gas power generation. And again, that is displacing coal. We also are in the environmental uh, business, which is another part of, of, of the E which is as we decarbonize the old energy world, we got a lot of cleanup to do as we move from that world more towards a renewable, clean energy world. So there are a lot of great investments. And what I love about energy investing is when oil gets hit, the valuations for all of energy go down. For example, power generation has nothing to do with oil. We generally don't use oil to make electricity in this country. But as oil trades off, everything in the sector, even renewables, trade off. And so uh, a lot of exciting entry points on this side of the business, environmental, renewables, natural gas uh, fired side of the business, as opposed to the oil and gas E&P, upstream uh, oil field services. We didn't talk about midstream and MLPs, an equally challenged area uh, there as well. So um, this has been one of our, our, the bright spots for our firm in terms of, of performance and um, societal demand is not slowing down. Renewables. I'm a little worried with state budgets as bad as they are. States are giving subsidies to renewables. Maybe a little harder uh, to give subsidies in this environment. I'd also say with natural gas prices so low. Renewables are finding it harder to compete. Renewables are not cheaper than uh, natural gas power generation. When you fully load it with transmission costs and backup storage costs. Uh, and you X out the subsidies, but society wants them. And I don't think that's going to change. Um, and so I think this is going to continue to be a, a you know a good place to put money and um, good for society, good for the environment at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. uh, it's a great summary of that of that topic because that's how we see it as well. It's uh, uh, good and you know on, on multiple levels.
2: Uh, Doug, we have a
0: couple of uh, uh, topics outside the uh, the energy space that I think uh, that we should touch on. Uh, one of which I mentioned up front. Uh, the Academic Athletics Center uh, you're building in LA in, in honor of your late wife, Carol, uh, which will be the largest tennis center in the Western half of the US. And you're doing it with the USTA, Tiger Woods, uh, you know, a broader group. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, your vision for what you're doing here and, and the genesis of it? And, uh, you know, I know this is a, a project, as I said, that the Kimmelman family cares an awful lot about. Well,
1: yeah, thank you and thanks for taking some some time for that and I guess we all hopefully have a focus that we leave leave this place better than we uh, than we found it. And so that's that's really what this is. But uh, my wife Carol was an elementary school teacher in inner city LA when I met her. She continued to do that for quite a bit of time and and what really resonated in in her heart were those kids that just didn't have the same opportunities and wonderful kids. But by the time they got to third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. The impact of um, violence, gangs, drugs, uh, broken homes—just uh, really didn't give those kids a give those kids a, a chance. And so um, that always resonated with her and our four kids. And after her losing a, a, a challenging battle with uh, ovarian cancer, my kids and I all got together and say, "How do we how do we honor this wonderful woman?" Her other passion was uh, tennis. She was quite a college player. And I think my, my record was 0-8-49 against her. I actually counted and I actually tried each time, but uh, I never got a victory. So we, uh, how do we put those two together? She was from LA, loved everything about LA. And um, you know, I guess go big or go home. I don't know what one little tennis court on the corner is gonna do. So we're partnering with, with the Tiger Woods Foundation and Tiger Woods himself. This is really his only large philanthropic endeavor to build an academic center. Um, which he has done in other places. That's his passion, STEM education. So we're building a large 25,000 square foot academic center for those kids focused on STEM education. Uh, And then tennis, we're partnering with the the United States Tennis Association. uh, They really want to do more than just talking about the inner city, but actually impacting it. Um, And, um, you know, this will be, you know, 50 tennis courts, the largest community center, largest tennis center in the western US. Uh soccer is a big sport in in demand, not enough fields for all the demand. So we're partnering with AEG and the LA Galaxy to do that. But more importantly, this is a public-private partnership with the county of Los Angeles. We're we're reconstituting a public golf course that was underutilized uh, into something that is really going to serve this community so, so, so well. And we hope that this type of public-private partnership and this kind of scale is something we go back maybe to my 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 private equity and hedge fund buddies and Chicago and Detroit and uh, Philadelphia and maybe this is the model to try to transform the inner cities and give these kids a little better a little better sense of sense of hope and uh, an opportunity and um, so and you, you and I have a have a mutual friend I think his something, the, the turn foundation something to be turned to foundation turned to a better lifestyle so uh, I love that motto consistent with what we're trying to do uh, here as
0: well. Fantastic, Doug. And I know from all the time that we spend together exactly how much you and your family have put into this and uh, you're pulling other people uh, like Tiger Woods into it to, to make sure that the vision is really, this incredible uh, thing that you're putting together. So uh, really, uh, uh, bravo. Um, maybe last question before I pull Neil in uh, and, and you teed it up well there with our mutual friend, uh, Derek Jeter. Uh, Doug and I uh, uh, are, are part of the Marlins organization with, uh, with Derek and um, uh, rather than talk at all about the Marlins in baseball, though, um, uh, Doug told the story uh, about uh, Derek um, uh, and an interaction he had uh, early in Derek's career with uh, Doug's son, Robert, that I wanted uh, the group to hear. As you know, Doug, uh, in addition to everything else, Derek's done. He is a senior advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management. So uh, maybe you tell the story about uh, Derek's interaction with Robert Kimmelman before, uh, long before he had any notion that Doug Kimmelman would be uh, a part of his life in the Marlins. Yeah, it's funny. And in, in life, I, I I tell my kids, you know, how you
1: treat everybody uh, throughout life, every single day, how you treat everyone, no matter. Who they are or, or what they're doing or, or where they come from you never know when that day will, what 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 comes around goes around and i'll just never forget it was a little clinic my son was maybe eight or nine years old and he was i guess behaving himself and not mouthing off and the other kids maybe were a little too excited that day and um i was you know watching from afar derek put his arm around him and i and i guess said something to him of uh, uh you're my man or you're my boy or something like that and they they he took him to play catch with them, and just made such a uh, impact on him that when you fast forward and when you introduced me to, to Derek maybe four four years ago, you know you have flashbacks to what a gentleman um, you know he was, and 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 uh, just the impression he left on not just my son, but hundreds of not millions of kids around this this uh, this this country and this world of how you carry yourself. So. Um, you know what a great moment, and what just you know about being a, a parent of four kids—it's life lessons, and and uh, maybe uh, learning from one of the best role models uh, that uh, this country has ever seen. And uh, hopefully, we'll have baseball back before too long, and uh, we can we can all be get back in the excited mode of having some sports.
0: That's great. It's a great story, and actually, Doug, it's one of the things uh, as Neil uh, moves in here. Um, yeah, he and I always talk about. Uh, you know the the uh the integrity really of, of an individual is around when people they don't think uh uh anybody's looking uh, uh how do they conduct themselves and uh that's why i love that story so much because uh you know, derek was just being nice to a a, a young boy who who uh who would benefit from it never knowing it would come full circle so um doug that was fantastic i am going to come back to you for a final word after uh after uh, Mr. Aronson and I uh, go through things, but uh, terrific and really uh, appreciate you being here, um, Neil. Uh, good afternoon.
2: Hey, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. I I love what you're doing and how you're doing it, and I'm a proud client of Rockefeller Capital Management, so I'm glad to be here.
0: It's great, uh, and um, I get to I get to see you as well, so that's uh, that's good. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, as you know, we are thrilled. Uh, with the the uh, the relationship we have with uh, with Fork uh, and um, and Neil Aronson, so uh, uh, as with uh, Doug, so thanks for being here, Neil. Uh, the space you're in, Doug's in an incredibly interesting space and so relevant to where the world's going, the energy space. Um, given your uh, status as uh, one of the largest uh, buyers and owners of restaurants in the world, and given the the imp- the, the fact that the you know this the coronavirus has had such an impact on, on on that industry in particular because of the inability to put people together um can you talk a little bit uh, up front and you were telling me the the size of the restaurant industry in the states and i was uh i was stunned a little bit about why the industry is so important to the economy both in terms of its size and and, and uh and the contribution that uh that it makes and, and why it's so critical that we get the industry back uh beyond the fact that people need to go out and eat just from a social standpoint, but just from an economic standpoint, this industry is one of the the, the
2: linchpins of an economy. Well, sure. Um, you know, it starts with people love food. There's a, there's an emotional connection, and they got to eat. And people love variety, and they love convenience, and they love interaction, and they love their trusted brands. And and we also have to remember, Greg, that society's time deprived. So two thirds of U.S. households are dual income. And when you wrap all that together, it means that 50% of food consumption comes from the grocery store and the other 50% comes from restaurants. Um, Overall, it's an $800 billion industry in the U.S. and a couple trillion dollars across the globe and growing. And in the U.S. alone, restaurant industry employs 15 million people. It's 10% of the working population. It's the second largest private employer in the country, and it's the largest first-time employer. So when the restaurant industry gets hurt, an awful lot of people get hurt too.
0: Oh, those statistics are amazing. I didn't even know that, even though we've spent so much time together, that it's the largest first-time employer. Uh, you know, it's a gateway job for so many. Uh, it's uh, it's incredible. Well, Neil, let's talk about it. And uh, again, you've got uh, a better seat on this one than anybody. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, could tell people like Secretary Mnuchin what's happening in the restaurant industry. How has COVID-19 impacted your business, your franchises, uh, your employees? Uh, uh, and you know, obviously, it's not been easy. But uh, can we can we uh, dive into that a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, 2020 until March 10th was on track for a retro- record year for us, um, and then in mid-March, virus changed everything. Um, and, and the way I think about it is there's three stages to this crisis. Um, the first was survival. Government mandate shut down gyms and spas and schools and restaurant dining rooms. Basically everything we own. And uh, we temporarily closed 11,000 locations or about a third of our total. Our our companies executed the fastest and the deepest cuts in our history. And that that caused our employees and our franchisees to really suffer. Uh, The people impact has been the most heartbreaking part of this crisis. We wound up furloughing 46,000 employees or a third of our workforce, and including our franchisees, hundreds of thousands of people's jobs are at risk. Talk to you a little bit about the impact of the restaurant industry on this country. Um, The second stage of this crisis is the pivot, and that's operating in the new environment, and that's where we are now. We're providing a ton of support. We're sharing best practices. We're in constant communication. We're deferring royalties and helping franchisees get PPP loans. We're testing and learning. We're adapting to the new normal. And now we're finally starting to reopen locations. And the third part of this crisis is the rebound. That's planning for the snapback and turning to offense. And that's where where we'll really thrive.
0: Yeah, and Neil, how has let's talk about the government uh, uh, and I, I gave them a lot of credit uh, up front, uh, Secretary Mnuchin. And, you know, he'd lived through the credit crisis and and they did move quickly, both fiscal and obviously the Fed has to try to jump in. How efficacious has that been in, in your industry where I mean, this was one of the industries uh, that should have been at the top of their list to try to help get company, get restaurants and and companies through so that uh, uh, employees, uh, you know, are covered in the in the interregnum and can get to the other side. How has PPP and, and other programs
2: worked? Well, I, I think we all hear and read about uh, challenges for it, but I'm here to tell you that um, it's really helped. Um, 90% of our 11,000 franchisees applied for PPP loans. and. That was a gigantic undertaking for us to help them make that happen because it, it's not so easy to do. And about half of them have gotten that money so far and more is on the way, I believe, and it's really helping. It's, it's helping those small business owners survive. It's helping them keep people employed. It's helping them bring people back employed. And so um, this, this endeavor of, of the government is, um, is helping.
0: That's great. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, I think that, uh, as you know, because you've watched this for decades, the speed with which they moved here, uh, you know, they. I, I said this on, uh, we were talking a couple of weeks ago uh, with a couple of guests, and I said, you know, I don't, there, there are times when the government really gets things done well, and we, we it would be nice to have the, the the world and the media talk about that a little bit. And they did come out of the gate quickly on, on, a, on this program, and, and it has had you know talking directly to somebody who's in the middle of it it has had a positive impact so neil uh as we look as we start to the, as the wheel starts to turn here and you're front and center on this you know h- how are things starting to change and um uh you know uh what are some of the green shoots here where is it is is it turning in a good way where is it too slow you know we still have the notion of some restaurants you can reopen them but 25 percent seating can you talk a little bit about how
2: it it's starting to turn now? Sure. Um, well, I think to talk about how it's starting to turn, you should know what what happened in the first month of the crisis. Um, yeah. What you'd what you'd see is that most restaurant companies, most restaurants had sales declines of thirty to hundred percent from mid March until mid April, um, and the industry was broken down this way. Um, those with with um, drive-throughs had a huge advantage. Those without drive-throughs had a big disadvantage. People need uh, that convenience, and they need they need their restaurants. So the quick service restaurant industry was doing the best. The high end of the restaurant industry doing the worst, and the people in the middle, fast casual and casual dining, have struggled a lot. Um, I gave you a little snapshot of what we're experiencing um, across this industry. Millions and millions of people have been furloughed or lost jobs in the restaurant industry. And that's all the case unless you're a pizza delivery brand or you're Wingstop. Um, and that takes us to the last 30 days, the second half of the crisis so far. And, and there, there's some good news. Sales have really improved. Um, our third-party delivery business has grown, and our drive-through and takeout business has exploded. And I think that's because people have wanted to get out of their house, I think they've realized cooking's a lot of work. I think they've realized it's time consuming and it limits variety and it's usually not as good as from a restaurant. And the other thing that we've seen is the government stimulus checks hit the bank accounts in mid-April and those people started to spend. And just to give you, make it a little bit more tangible in real life, I'll just talk about a couple of the chains so you get the sense of the spectrum. Sonic um, is our best performing restaurant chain. It's It's got order-ahead technology and stay-in-your-car service. So early in the crisis, same-store sales were down about 10% compared to last year. Now they're up over 30%. And so for the last three weeks in a row, it's had the best sales in the chain's 65-year history. Um, at Arby's, drive-through has been really strong. Early in the crisis, the Same-store sales were down about 20 to 25% compared to last year. Now they're positive 10% over last year. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, we had the highest store volume week in the the brand's 55-year history. And here's something interesting. We don't have the dining rooms open. And without dining rooms, store margins are up 300 to 500 basis points. So that's the positive side of things. The other side of it, I said in the middle, casual dining, um, we own a, a, a brand called Buffalo Wild Wings, the largest sports bar in the in the world. And they're canceling the NCAA basketball tournament, the NBA season, and the Masters golf tournament. Not good for Buffalo Wild Wings. And if you think about it, the crisis really started on March 15th. That's literally at the highest peak over the next 30 days in Buffalo's year is when everything got shut down. More recently, though, uh, same-store sales have gone from negative 65% to negative 40%. That's before we opened the dining rooms. And, and on the positive side, our e-commerce business has tripled. And when you look out a little ways, a lot of local sports bars won't reopen after the crisis. So that'll give you a little bit of sense of how we got to up until the last uh, last couple weeks as we've now just started to open stores.
0: Yeah, that's a great overview and, and uh, uh you know kudos to you all for the the you know, it with, with some of the brands and some of the strategies doing as well as they have uh which is uh which is great to see and you, you know you and i talked about this some of the biggest challenges are going to be these one off uh you know mom and pop restaurants that, that the longer this goes on the harder it is for them them to come back in contrast to you know a scale player with a differentiated and recognized brand like the ones that you own yeah so neil what about uh change in consumer behavior this is something you look at a lot um and uh you know there, there's the the number of predictions now grow by the day and um actually doug sent me a a, a survey that he was looking at where six thousand people said various things on different topics including Seventy you know, percent of them saying they wouldn't get on a plane, a commercial plane, and fifty-eight percent saying they wouldn't go on a date right now. Uh, you know, people want to uh, to read into things like this and say it's going to be this way for a long time. And and you and I both have said people. I, I'm still with people who are going to shake hands and greet physically. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's twelve or twenty-four months out, but that's not going out of human society in my eyes. I know there are a lot of people on the other side of this forever. But what are, when you look at um, uh, changes in the in consumer behavior going forward, what are some of the things that, that you are looking at that, that you think might have more legs and might be more secular-like uh, uh, as we come out of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think we think about it over the long term, and uh, that can be very different than the immediate term. But I don't think consumer desires are going to fundamentally change. I think people wanna get back to what they like the best. And I also think they're generational tailwinds. Millennials like experiences over things. They eat at restaurants twice as much as past generations. And by 2025, they'll increase from 25% to 50% of the prime spenders in the US. So what does all that mean? It means, I think it means people are gonna wanna eat out. I think people are gonna wanna exercise. I think it means people are gonna wanna socialize. They'll want to wash and fix their cars, they'll want to clean and fix their teeth, and they'll want to get the best education money can buy for their kids. Um, So I think there's a lot more that is going to stay the same than will change, but there are changes. And most of those changes are really acceleration of what was already happening before the COVID-19 crisis. More digital engagement, more off-premise dining, more focus on health and safety, more personalization, more touchless, more focus on value for the money. And and when I summarize all that, what do I think all that means? It means we'll be making, or the best companies will be making much bigger investments in technology. The biggest and the most trusted brands are gonna gain market share. The independents are gonna shrink. And that all means more need for scale and more consolidation. So, um, that's, what, that's what we think. That's a long-term view. I think in the short term, um, we believe people wanna get back to their routines. We think there'll be leaders and there'll be followers, and, and there's gonna be plenty of people that won't be able to afford the same things in the short term. So, the ramp up at these stores could take a while. And, and just to give you a sense, um, we have opened up, about 1,700 locations, about 15% of what we've closed um, so far. They've only been open for a week or two, so our data set's pretty small right now, um, but we'll know a lot more over the ne- next 30 days. But let me just tell you what we're seeing so far that would dispel some of the rumors that people are going to do everything differently. We've we've started to open up some Buffalo Wild Wings. We opened about 300 of the dining rooms and, and sales increased 40%. Um, They're still down from pre-COVID levels, but down like 18 percent. That's way less than I would have guessed because there's no live sports on TV. Um, We are seeing some interesting data points in our non-restaurant brands that might be interesting to some of the people on the phone. Um, In our car wash business, we've now opened about 95 percent of the stores and sales are positive compared to the same period last year because thanks to our touchless car wash, it's a limited service, don't have to touch a human being, can get your car washed. The gym business, who's going to go into a gym when it's crowded and you're touching things? Well, we just started Open Orange Theory Fitnesses. We've opened about 130 gyms so far and our members have reactivated, over 90% of our members have already reactivated. That's, and in the gyms, the classes, the revised class schedule, 75 to 90% full. And we have waiting lines. People want to get back in the gym. Even massage envy, that's like really close uh, comfort for people. Reactivation of the members so far, eighty percent. And so what i what I think all that means, i I think people are following their own instincts and I think they're following brands they trust rather than than the government and the news media and all the rhetoric that's coming out. I think, uh, companies that show they care about people's safety, and they care about their team's safety, um, those are the ones that that people are going to gravitate to. I, I, we take that responsibility really seriously, and so we're opening when we think it's safe and smart to do it, and we're not opening if we don't think we're going to be profitable. So we're only open for one or two weeks in a lot of places, even though we had the right to open a month ago. When the government tells us what we can do and can't do, we still have to do what we think is right. And that's what we do, and I think the consumers notice that. But we're seeing pretty big um, improvements. On the other hand, to get everybody a really balanced view, um, I have a little bit of trepidation about all this positivity that we're starting to see and making sure that we don't have false positive in some of this information because it's so new. So I caution everybody about it. Some of the questions I'm asking um, ourselves are, will the people come back to work in the short term? There's an awful lot of people that are getting paid more money to be unemployed than what they were making when they were employed in, in restaurants. What happens when the government stimulus um, finally stops? What happens when people's savings run out? And And of course, we all worry, if the virus will come back. But we are seeing human behavior reverting back. We do expect some people to lead, some people to follow, some people to be slower followers. But so far, it's going better than we would have guessed.
0: That's great to hear. And uh, actually consistent with what Doug was saying, and frankly, the process that you say people go through is what Doug was saying, where they're, you know, rather than just watch the media or listen to the, you know, whatever lessons people are, are trying to put out there, government or otherwise, they dig in, they start to make their own decisions, and then they start to react. Uh, but those statistics that you describe, and, and granted, it's early and you want to you test it over time, uh, you know, it's fantastic that people, and people do, they, they want to go back to the gym, they want to go out and eat, uh, and um, if it, they think it's a brand, which is what you own, that they can trust that's gonna treat the health and safety seriously, I'm not surprised that it's already gearing up, uh, you know, certainly in, in, in different parts of the world. And I think Georgia's probably much more similar, and I know you're not only talking about Georgia, but Georgia's much more similar to, uh, to Florida. You know, one thing I wanted to make sure I, I, I asked about because um, you talked about consolidation and there's no question you're well positioned to continue to consolidate in the space uh given the the business that you're running and the and the and and how well you're running it you bought cheesecake factory right in the middle of this in fact uh uh i would guess i don't have the date in front of me but it might have only been several weeks into this where you announced the acquisition of cheesecake factory can you talk a little bit about that and you know uh i would guess as you said over time given some of the pressures here there will be more opportunities for you and others that are on the acquisition side of the equation to uh to build more scale in, in in the space, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the Cheesecake Factory acquisition.
2: Yeah, well, I think people on this call will all appreciate that um, cash is king and liquidity matters and public confidence matters. And for the public restaurant companies, all the things we're talking about made the stock market, I guess our experience in the stock market is, it goes down too far and too fast and up too far and too fast. And cheesecake is one of those examples. Uh, On April 20th, we invested $200 million into the Cheesecake Factory in what they call a pipe. Um, It's convertible preferred stock, and we get a 9.5% dividend rate. And it's senior to $850 million of public equity. So our risk position is only 2.5 times pre-virus EBITDA. We're below a little bit of debt and above a whole bunch of public common equity. Our bet was actually not not too complicated. It's Cheesecake's an iconic brand. It has a huge menu and a great guest experience that's super hard to replicate. And it's got some cool emerging brands like North Italian Flower Child. And our bet was it'll be a survivor and eventually a thriver. And we're gonna do pretty well if it just gets back to pre-COVID levels anytime over the next five or six years. And it's interesting, publicly, the management team has stated that they believe um, that cheesecake factory in one year from today will be back to pre-COVID levels. We're going to do fine if we get there in five or six years.
0: That's great. Well, congratulations. Looks like uh, like a smart, uh, well-timed deal on your side, uh, and I I, uh, I would guess and uh, that we're going to see more of those over time here uh, from uh, from work. Um, Neil, uh, one thing I wanted to make sure I gave you an opportunity to talk about because of uh, the impact that this has had on your employees uh, and how, how, uh, uh, how out front you and, and your wife Wendy were on this. Uh, talk a little bit about the work Employee Relief Fund. Um, you know it's, it's something that I know you both feel passionately about and I also know that your children uh, went in and, and donated and, and you know, you took the three million dollars that you all started with and you've turned it into eight million dollars. Uh, and you're proud of that and it it, it reflects the values, not unlike uh, Doug Kimmelman, the values of uh, Neil Aronson and family that extend through to Rourke Capital and through the way you run your firm. We knew that before this uh, because we know you, but watching you step in and do that uh, is a clear example of what Neil Aronson and his family and what Rourke is about. So uh, I just want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, thanks for for letting me, and and Doug, um, I absolutely love and admire what you described and what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, you're setting a great example for everybody, and, and it makes me proud to know you and proud to be part of this uh-huh. community. Um, you, you know, at, at Rourke, our mission is to help people and companies realize their potential, and our core values are things like treat people the way you want to be treated and Always do what you say and always do what's right and long term smart, regardless of conventional wisdom. And, and these pr- principles have guided us since the beginning, but they're more important now than ever before. And and one of the things that we realized right away is we got to take care of the people who helped get us here. And so we're, we're really proud that we set up the Rock Employee Relief Fund. Um, it's, its purpose is to help, pe- help the employees of our companies who need it the most those who lost their jobs because of no fault of their own. Um, We're getting money to people who need help making ends meet. Um, Our money is going to people to pay their rent, to buy food, to buy diapers, to pay for essentials. And I've been overwhelmed and humbled by the, the response to this thing. Our goal was to raised $5 million, we've raised $8 million. Um, Nearly 100% of our team members contributed. And I'm proud that my teenagers, um, Matthew, Will and Ellie donated. It was a wonderful way to explain to them more about not just our business, but our responsibility to others and do it in a really tangible way about what we're on this earth to do to to help others. And, And I told them that um, around the dinner table, and they both said that all three of them said they wanted to donate, and I was really proud of that. So, we're also humbled that and grateful that we got an outpouring of support from some a- external partners, people like Rockefeller, who uh, donated really generously. And just to give you guys a, a feel for it, our our funds are going to help over 10,000 people with donations. It includes over a thousand Primrose school teachers. A thousand massage therapists, a thousand fitness instructors, and thousands and thousands and thousands of cooks and dishwashers and servers. This is the backbone of our country. Um, we have obligations to make sure we look out for our own, and 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 that's what we're doing, and and um, we're we're proud to do our part.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, I have to say, I when when you were talking about the principles that that work. Uh, Wants to stand for its employees and you as the leader, your family. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, check, check, check. That's what we want to do at Rockefeller Capital Management. That's what our people want to be known for. Uh, And and the bookend here of what you and Doug have have, have done in terms of uh, giving back in in, an incredible way uh, in society. Uh, You know, given uh, your ability to do that and your ability to organize others as well to take the donation you and Wendy did and lever it. And Doug did the same thing too. He has the brainchild, he gets it going, then he pulls others in, including Tiger Woods, to make sure that it has the, the, the reality is the vision that he had. It's just fantastic. Uh, which is one reason why I said up front, I was so pleased to have you both here today. Um, Doug, I'm gonna come back to you for a final thought. I'll come back to Neil for one one more, and then I'm gonna close on a quote from a, a guy that's very close to uh, to all of us. Uh, so, Doug, anything you want to leave the group with? Um, I typically try to prompt this and say on an optimistic note, I don't need to do that with either one of you because you both look <laughs> there. You're always on your front foot. Uh, so any any uh, uh, final uh, words of counsel for our clients in the Rockefeller uh, crowd?
1: Sure. Well, look, I'll just say also kudos to you, Neil, and just warms the heart uh, here in this. And uh, it's one of the things I love about private equity is uh pretty much every everyone you turn to in our world is is doing something similar so um just uh, just great to hear that look i i I, the stock market sure feels to be um somewhat overvalued here relative to the underlying economy and the fundamentals so for us it's being defensive and looking for defensive things and as what i said tale of two cities in the energy world it's nice to be concentrated on the defensive side of power generation renewables when gdp is down 40 percent. You know, power generation, you know, demand for electricity hardly touched uh, at all. Uh, No one may be uh, in in the mall buying too much, but the air conditioning is on. We've got population shifts to the Sunbelt areas, to Texas and Florida and Arizona, so more electricity load. I talked about all these green shoots in terms of the demand for energy and electric vehicles and nationalism and more manufacturing and all these server farms. So um, I focus on that and then I focus on credit i think you know there's always and, and, and neil talked about that that, that convertible that uh, they did which is a, that's a great structure these days so find your defensive sectors but then make sure you're coming into the right spot in the capital structure and these days often the risk reward is better uh on the credit side of, of of things where we're seeing you know in that 10 percent area top of the capital structure and if you can do that in the defensive sector where the bottom not going to fall out like power generation or renewables you know, I'd stay you know, focused on that and to just be a little wary of the uh, uh, public equities uh, these days because so many sectors seem to be way out ahead of them, uh, themselves. But um, I'll leave it at that. And uh, thank you so much for uh, including me in the discussion today, Greg.
0: It's great to have you here. And that was a great, succinct uh, set of investment recommendations as well from somebody who's been successful in that space for decades. Uh, Neil, over to you for a final word, and then I'll wrap it
2: up. Yeah, well, thanks. I, I guess uh, on the investment side, um, in our in our world, scale is going to increasingly matter, and um, and we're looking forward to being able to do our thing. Like, uh, the highest performing fund we've ever had in our 20-year history was our 2008 fund when we invested right into the, the into the recession, the Great Recession. Um, And we're comfortable doing that, and we think we have a a view about how to do it. And and so we're going to put ourselves to the test again here. Um, But the thing I I guess I'd love to share with you on a closing thought is really just about this whole macro um, world that we're we're looking at. I I think the economic crisis and the impact of the the crisis is going to last for a while. But, but I also think the crisis reminds us of the importance of family and friends and community and, and our responsibility to help others. Um, when I think through our portfolio, there have been countless incredible stories of humanity coming out of this crisis. And, and just to give you a few of, of hundreds, Inspire Brands has served over a thousand meals to the Atlanta hospitals. And Jim and Nick's has provided free barbecue to healthcare workers. And Great Expressions doctors have have taken on dental emergency surgeries so we could free up space in hospital ERs so they could treat COVID patients. And Primrose school teachers have driven to each and every one of their 60,000 students' houses so that the students didn't lose Cookie Friday. And uh, Massage Envy customers have donated tons of massages to nurses who are serving COVID-19 patients. And in Anytime Fitness, um, we we heard of a story where um, one of the franchisees delivered an exercise bike to a customer of theirs um, who's 92 years old that comes into the gym every day, but he couldn't come in anymore because of COVID. and, And they brought him a bike so he could work out every day. God, I, I wish I could say that I'm gonna work out every day when I'm ninety-two years old. But that's but that's that's heart and that's soul, and that's what this country is about, and that's what but these brands are about, and that that's the people we're trying to help that are about. And I hope we never forget all those. And and as I kind of step back from all of it, I I'd say that the pandemic was certainly gonna be remembered for the devastation it's taken um on people's lives. But but I also hope it'll be remembered for the way people helped others when they needed it the most. And, um, and, and the last thing I'd leave you is, is one quick little story, Greg. Is um, I, I saw this the other day from one of my partners sent me a note that she got from her daughter Samantha. And this little girl had driven and colored in a, um, uh, a mom in a Superman cape. And that was the picture she made. And then she wrote a note underneath and it said, dear mom, you're my hero. And it is just an awesome reminder of some of the good that's coming from being at home and remembering um, the people that are closest to us. And we all have crisis that we're dealing with. We all have um, concerns and sadness, but but there's some good that's gonna come of this. There's some good that's already coming from this. And I'm optimistic that over the long term, uh, we will come out of this uh, stronger than ever and I, I am always reminded every day of Machiavelli's quote, quote that said that that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And I believe in that. And I know Greg, you believe in that too. So thanks for the time today. I really appreciate getting a chance to talk to everybody.
0: Uh, Neil, it's been great. Uh, you and Doug have been fantastic. Uh, and um, uh, you know, your summary is the summary I try to lead toward in every, uh, every one of these. Uh, and Doug is right there in the same theme uh, just to be clear, Neil, though uh, you and I and Doug will be on that exercise bike at 92. Uh, as soon as I heard that, I was like, uh, "That may be my favorite story in this." That uh, that he he needed the exercise bike. Uh, just fantastic examples you provided, real world, real people. And and there are many positives in anything, including this. And the time to um, to spend with uh, family members you don't often get to see. Uh, you know, we've got teenagers and young adults at home, and that's been fantastic uh, in so many ways. So there are positives and uh, Americans do do what you said, uh, get on the front foot and move forward. Uh, and, and that's happening now and will happen, uh, continue to happen going forward. So uh, this is an example of what Rockefeller Capital Management tries to bring to our clients that we think is unique. And that is the intellectual capital, the expertise, the on the ground, knowledge of people like Doug Himmelman and Neil Aronson, who are leaders today in huge sectors of our economy, energy and restaurant and uh, uh, and gyms and fitness and all of that, um, and also have been over the course of their careers. So they bring so much judgment to all of this. So we're very uh, uh, pleased uh, that you join us today. And I am gonna close on a quote from Derek uh, Jeter, uh, one of his favorite quotes, And the reason I picked this is, A, he likes it a lot, but B, it fits our two guest speakers to a T. So Derek said, um, quote, your image isn't your character. Character is what you are as a person. And these two guys who we had on here today, as well as Mr. Jeter, are enormously successful and have done amazing things across their careers, but it is the nature of the individuals that... uh, uh that is part of the big part of the reason why we are are good friends with them and, and so close to them at rockefeller capital management so to our clients our employees our colleagues and friends of rockefeller have a great weekend we will continue to bring differentiated intellectual capital and expertise in the form of people like not that there are many like this but like doug kimmelman and neil Aronson. so thanks very much have a great weekend all